Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today is Friday, September 9th, 2022, and I wanted to continue the musical theme that I started on Wednesday with my episode on the great Buddy Holly, who I consider one of the two most important people in creating rock music as we know it today. I, I think that as great as the contributions of people like Elvis and Bill Haley and Little Richard and and a host of others, really Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry were the two that that came up with the format that that went on to be rock music is not as much as rock and roll which is more kind of western swing and rhythm and blues in the 1950s but the basic rock band writing their own songs with a lead guitar as the prominent instrument and more often than not the, a rhythm guitar bass and drums sometimes keyboards that was all buddy holly and chuck berry nobody else really did that format chuck as a solo artist with a backing band and then buddy holly as a member of the crickets who also don't get enough credit for the pioneers they were because the big hits early on were labeled not as buddy holly and the crickets they were just the crickets that'll be the day if you go look up the 45 it just says the crickets on there of course that's a complicated story i won't get back into why Buddy was trying to hide his name from Decca Records, with whom he had an exclusive agreement on that song. But it is a nice segue, because Buddy later felt that he had been taken advantage of by his manager, and I'm not here to give the final word on that, but there's this general theme that rock musicians and pop music musicians are taken advantage of by the record companies. And unlike... The same argument made for employees and all kinds of other industries. This one is universally accepted by not only the left and the communists and the socialists and the interventionist liberals, but also by most of the right and even probably most libertarians, whom I don't consider left or right. And the general story is that the record company discovers 
this immensely talented artist and sees an opportunity to sign them up to some deal where they don't get very much of the profits from the records and you know make all this money and don't really contribute much to the effort other than being kind of a parasite. And what's astounding to me, first and foremost, is how most people don't seem to recognize this is the exact same argument that Karl Marx makes about the workers in in regular industries. So that, that these workers are really creating all the value and these evil capitalists are just parasites that milk most of the profits away and just give the workers enough to survive. And although the musicians in the classic record deal from the 50s through the 2000s, these days most people are able to go on without a record company, but when that was the only option to get your music heard, they weren't employees, they were contractors, they were in a contract in business with the record company. Really, the arguments are all the same as Karl Marx made for the noble workers who are producing the products, or I should say running the machines that the capitalists provide, the entrepreneurs provide with the capitalist money if it's not the same person. So I guess the first thing to do is to just knock down this whole argument that an employer can ever be exploiting the employees in any kind of a voluntary marketplace employment contract. So, you know, you hear a lot about, well, they have to, they should pay a living wage. Of course, what exactly a living wage is, is never really clearly defined. The best I can make out is that a living wage means you should pay every employee of your business enough to support an entire household on just that salary or hourly wage. And I'm not sure exactly when or where that silly idea first got legs, because I know that in the mid to late 1980s, when I had my first apartment, I had four roommates. It was actually a small house that we rented in what today would be called the hood. And it happened to have five bedrooms, including one room that wasn't really a bedroom that one guy slept in. And I used to rent the house with my band and we'd split that among five people, the four of us in the band and one other guy. And there was certainly no way that I could afford with the money I was making straight out of college to afford even my own apartment on my own, something I don't think I did until I was 30 years old or or close thereabouts. I always had a roommate when I was in my 20s and single. So I could never afford an entire household. And I was making pretty good money at the time. So this whole idea that every job has to support a family of four and an entire household is just, you know, out of no, out of whole cloth. And it's rather new because having roommates and sharing apartments was not something that was controversial as far as I knew in the late 1980s and early 1990s. So anyway, the the overall argument is you're not paying these people enough and, and you're exploiting them because you're making so much money. And it's pretty easy to diffuse these arguments because the first question a skeptic would say to this argument that the employer is not paying enough is, well, why don't they go take a job somewhere else? And of course, the answer to that question 
is that this is the best situation that's been offered to them by anybody. So anyone who's employed anywhere is choosing that employer because there's no better options for that person at that time. Now, usually this means no one is offering them more money, although it's not always purely just money that makes someone choose one job over another. The working conditions, the hours, the compatibility with the lifestyle the person wants may play a part as well. For example, they they may be able to get a job working in a coal mine from midnight to seven in the morning, and maybe they don't want to, even if that job pays more. So people do make choices based on something other than money, but for the most part, and especially when you're not making a heck of a lot, you make your choices based on where you can make the most money for those hours you're going to be working. So this begs the question, how could this employer who's willing to pay this person more than anyone else in the world possibly be exploiting them? How could he or she be the bad guy? Why isn't it everyone else that isn't willing to pay more? You know, this argument makes no sense on its face. And then, of course, the only retort to this that I've ever heard, and it's usually, it's a very weak retort, is that, well, a lot of cases, people don't have other choices than that one. Okay, well, there's two answers to that. One, why don't they move? Well, they can't afford to move. Okay, so they're unable to move and there's no other choices. So what you're saying is this employer is literally saving their lives, keeping them from starvation and exposure, and they're the bad guy. And of course, at that point, the person usually stomps away calling you names or whatever, because there is no answer to this idiotic argument. The employer's not paying too much. As long as you have even the semblance of a voluntary market, and ours is, of course, very intervened into by the government, and many opportunities are precluded to many, many people because the government sets all kinds of limits to what employers can and what workers can accept. I don't want to get sidetracked on the minimum wage, but nobody remembers that the minimum wage isn't just a prohibition on employers. It's a prohibition on workers. And that's actually what its real purpose is, is to keep people from undercutting privileged labor with lower prices, i.e. lower wages for the same work. And of course, this all started in the 1930s with the first minimum wage, the Davis-Bacon Act, which was aimed at getting African-Americans from, or keeping African-Americans from out-competing white workers. Another little-known fact about St. FDR was that uh, he was a big proponent of labor unions, and a big focus of labor unions in the 1930s was to keep black labor from out-competing white labor. So everybody's an anti-racist until it's one of their left-wing heroes. So getting back to the whole worker thing. So that that's the argument with the worker. And obviously the other part of the argument is that the workers are not creating most of the value of the produced products. That if they were, then they simply wouldn't go to the company to get a job, they'd make the products themselves. 
So somebody has to rent the land or buy it, build the factory, buy the machines, pay for them to be up, kept up, take the risk on investing all that money, including in all the workers' wages before the first product is sold. Okay, all that has to be done before saint laborer in the manufacturing plant goes in and does his job to screw in the same bolt all day. And of course, when there was a need for people to do that, and we didn't have robots that could do it better, faster, and without getting sick and without complaining, you know, there was nothing wrong with taking those jobs. That work was needed. It was a perfectly honest way to make a living. And it was made at the market price. And Again, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but of course, this push by the right to return manufacturing jobs that simply don't exist anymore because machines have taken most of them over. No, they didn't. They weren't shipped out to China. There's no such thing as shipping out a job. The jobs here don't exist anymore. And the only reason that people might outsource some manufacturing to places like China and Singapore and Mexico is that it's it's an industry where either it hasn't been fully automated yet, they haven't figured out a way to have machines do this, or it's actually cheaper, and I have some experience in manufacturing overseas, to pay 50 people in a room to at a, at a lower wage, which is a high wage for their market. That's why they come in to do those jobs that it's actually cheaper for the manufacturer to do that than to invest in the machines right now. And, you know, some things like textiles where it pays to have them, some parts of them handmade or whatever, those, those get outsourced. So really it's only labor intensive manufacturing that is being outsourced overseas. And it's only because the labor there is affordable. And the alternative is not to make it in the United States. I'm telling you, it's not a matter of paying twice as much. It's a matter of paying 10 times as much to make it here in the United States. And nobody wants the products that you'd make at the prices you'd have to charge. So this is reality, folks. Um, You know, I didn't make up economics. I'm just the messenger, so don't shoot me. But again, most of the manufacturing jobs in the United States were lost to automation, and there's plenty of studies on this. But again, I digress. I just wanted to kind of flesh out this whole exploited worker thing. And I know most libertarians already are aware of these things, even most conservatives, although conservatives are more susceptible to buying into that when it fits their political agenda. But everybody still buys the fact that Billy Joel or or the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or or Elvis or whomever were exploited by these terrible record companies who gave them bad deals when they first started out. And really, this is the exact same argument as the exploited worker. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you're enjoying the content here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can support my efforts here a couple of ways at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. You can join my Patreon for as little as $3 per month and get machine transcripts to every episode and access to my members-only MeWe group, 
while all Access patrons also get my paid subscriber-only articles and videos, or you can become a VIP patron to get all of that, plus access to all of my online courses and a signed copy of the Tom Mullen book of your choice. Now, if you prefer Substack, I also post my paid subscriber-only content there. Find links to all the ways you can support the show at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. Become a supporter of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom today. And now let's get back to our episode. And you have to understand that when a record company signs, let's say the Beatles, okay, the biggest selling rock group of all time, I I think they still are as far as I know, they don't know in 1962 that the Beatles are going to be the biggest selling rock group of all time. And in fact, all their experience tells them that the Beatles are probably going to lose money because at the same time, they're signing dozens of other acts. and. You have to just think about what each act brings to the table. They bring to the table music ability, which literally millions of people have. Uh, Maybe you can go out and make an argument. There weren't that many singers as good as Paul McCartney or as many song, obviously as many songwriters as they were. But in 1962, the Beatles didn't have any good songs of all the songs they gave George Martin the best one that he could find, the one that sounded most like a hit to him was Love Me Do, which nobody would argue is a a great innovation in music or even one of the Beatles' better songs. But he liked the way they sounded. He liked their, their charisma. They looked pretty good. And he took a chance on them along with, you know, dozens of other groups as I And I mentioned in the Buddy Holly episode that it was kind of the same with Buddy Holly, that he really wrote all of his best songs after he got his record deal. So what he presented to Decca Records or even to Norman Petty when he first started was not that great. He had the one really good song, That'll Be the Day. And of course, a lot of that had to do with Norman Petty's mentoring and arrangement of the song because when you listen to the Decca Records version it's not very good and and would never have been a hit actually Owen Bradley who was a a master at making hits in Nashville who produced the song said it was the worst song he ever heard so in any case the artists are bringing at least their talent maybe some potential and you have to remember that every act a record company signs They all see some potential in that act. They don't know for sure which one of them is going to become, you know, a big, big selling group or a big selling artist. And most of them do not. Yet the record company lays out all the money to record. And anyone who's been in a recording studio knows that that's not cheap. So they they lay out all the money to record the music. And back in the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even. Then they lay out all the money for the physical product. 
So you're usually talking back then hundreds of thousands of dollars, which would be millions of dollars today before they they realize their first sale. And then most acts signed by record companies do not recoup the investment made by the record company. So what the record company is doing is using their best judgment and their experts in, in predicting what the market is going to like as far as music. And then they'll sign two dozen acts. And out of those two dozen, one or two will sell enough to make a profit over all of the other groups that they lost money on. And you'll notice too that whenever you hear the story of the exploited musician, they only report what the, the that musician's records sold and how much the record company made. They don't report the two dozen other acts that the company lost money on and how much that was. And that's not to say that record companies don't make, you know, huge profits on bringing this music to the public. Of course, we shouldn't have any problem with that. That's the invisible hand at work. The record company EMI made huge profits on the Beatles, and we got the Beatles music. And the Beatles also became far richer than any of them would ever have been if they hadn't signed that contract with EMI. Although I should point out that the working class hero, John Lennon, was not a working class hero. The one who really grew up poor was Ringo. He grew up in the slums. But George and Paul, they grew up in government housing because so much of England was socialist at the time. But uh, they were they were lower middle class people. And John Lennon grew up on a dairy farm. I mean, his, his aunt owned, and his aunt and his uncle owned a dairy farm. They were small business people. He was very middle class. And Paul McCartney used to say he had to go up a social class to go over and visit John. And of course, all the socialists and communists come out of good families like the other Lenin and are spoiled by their parents and, and grow up to be socialist brats. But again, I digress. The point is that all of the arguments against the exploited worker in any other industry apply to the myth of the exploited rock star. Because really, what is the rock star bringing to the table when they make their agreement? They're bringing some talent that is not all that scarce, but maybe some uniqueness in the way that they uh, perform their songs, or maybe they've got some good songs already by the time they get signed. I mean, really, is I want to hold your hand, this extraordinary work of art, that 20 million other groups couldn't have written? No. I mean, the Beatles went on to create extraordinary music, but the Dave Clark Five or 20 million, and even the Dave Clark Five is famous because they're one of the ones that you actually remember that actually made a profit, but a dozen other groups could have written something like, I want to hold your... The record company, on the other hand, not knowing if this is just going to be another loser. And remember, Decca Records actually turned down the Beatles with the famous line, guitar groups are on the way out. So they didn't think much of what the Beatles were bringing. And when you listen to their Decca audition tapes, you know, you could see why. It was nothing special. There was something there. I always liked the sound of John Lennon's voice, even more than Paul McCartney's, who was technically a, a better singer. 
But other than that, they were playing a lot of covers. They played a lot of show tunes, standards, like Besame Mucho, you know. So there wasn't that much there, and no one could have known that the Beatles would become what they went on to become. Meanwhile, the record company is investing the equivalent today of tens of millions of dollars just to take a chance that maybe there's something there. And as far as, well, they didn't give them a big enough percentage of the profits. Well, why didn't the Beatles go somewhere else? Because EMI was willing to pay them more than any other record company. In fact, they were the only ones willing to do a deal with the Beatles at the time. So just like the manufacturer or Walmart or whomever that's accused of not paying enough, these, this was the company that was willing to pay them something and definitely more than anyone else in the world. How could they be the villains? So it's the same argument there. What were the Beatles' alternatives to not signing with EMI? Well, to keep playing bars and clubs in obscurity until they either moved on to some kind of employment situation matching their other skills or to just keep on playing music forever at the rates that they made in the clubs as long as people were willing to come and see them. So just like the argument that the workers create all the value for manufacturing, let's say, the the idea that the artists create all the value in record companies just isn't true. Otherwise, they would do it on their own. And of course, today, people have that opportunity. And guess what? They complain about that too. Now you don't need a record company. Now you can go out and put your music out there against all the other musicians. And some people happen to catch on and make a lot of money. Most people do not. Uh, and one of the complaints is, well, nobody buys records anymore. And this is seen as some kind of injustice done to the musicians. Now, I've been a musician since I was a teenager. I was real serious about it in my 20s and early 30s. I've opened for national acts. I, I've been on the radio. The one thing we were always able to do back with my band, The Skeptics, in the 90s was get on the radio. We would send our CDs out to independent stations all over the northeastern United States, and we were played on dozens of them. Regular rotation, we were on the CMJ charts, which used to be the thing that tracks, it's called the College Music Journal. And that's the way you used to get established, was to try and get on the CMJ charts, which we did. Our, our big downfall is none of us wanted to quit our jobs because we had good jobs at the time, all of us. And uh, we didn't go on the road and live out of a van eating tuna fish for five years like the Google Dolls did. Not to imply that uh, we were as good as the Google Dolls. Or maybe we were. Who knows? I don't know. But we never really took that chance. But now you don't have these, these quote-unquote gatekeepers being the record companies, which when you think about it, the 20th century had this technology, the record, and then the CD that was really kind of created a bubble for musicians to make an, an inordinate amount of money off of a single performance called the, the album or the single, which in all the history of popular music was not the case. Musicians always made a living, if they could make a living as musicians, 
performing live. And really, that's what it's come back to now that this bubble, this technology bubble, where, you know, the only way to hear an artist that you couldn't see live is to hear it on this physical product that you had to now that that's over, popular music has really returned to what it's always been. And let's face it, I, I'm proud of the songs that I've written. I think they're pretty darn good, but they're not Beethoven. And neither were the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or, or most popular music artists. Get a hold of yourself, musicians. <laughs> Your three-chord song and my three-chord song, although mine usually have more than that, are not that special, Okay. People hear them, they make them happy. That's that's great. And if you can make a million dollars somehow performing them or selling your CDs, I want you to keep every penny of that. But the, the reality is, is the market has gone back to what popular music was for thousands of years, which is people with a rather unremarkable talent performing rather unremarkable music for the masses who enjoy it. And that's a great thing. It's just not something that the market really prices at a very high level anymore, especially except for those few people who bring more than just, you know, their catchy little song, who are dynamic performers. The ones that distinguish themselves still become millionaires. So no unfairness there either. But Getting back to this exploited rock star thing, I just wanted to say a few words about that. It's been on my mind forever, not just because it's so similar to Marx's other ar arguments about the workers, but also that so many people seem to accept that one. Even people who don't accept the exploited worker myth seem to ex accept the exploited rock star myth. And that just seems strange to me, especially because they focus on the the rock stars that they know, the ones that did make millions of dollars and many of whom squandered it all and then complained they didn't get enough from the record company when they just blew millions of dollars that no, most people will never you know, even see in their lifetimes. Those are the musicians that people think are exploited. And I'm not saying any musicians are exploited, but if you're going to pick out a victim group, it wouldn't be the one traveling around in limousines and flying on private jets who spends more than he makes and goes broke and then complains the record company didn't pay him enough. That's not the guy you should pick out of, of all the people in the world to pick out as a victim. That's a really a strange one. But as, as you can see, the whole argument makes no sense whatsoever. It's just more commie, you know, Marxist baloney. And I wish people would stop giving it legs because believe me, no musician that you've ever heard of, because if you've heard of them, that means they sold a lot of records or CDs or whatever. None of them were exploited. So that'll do it for today. Again, I've got a lot of great guests coming up. I just had a little blip this week because number one, I did some traveling and went to the Ron Paul conference, Anatomy of a Police State. I highly recommend that for Anybody who likes our ideas, it's really kind of a recharge. You hear some great speakers. You, you hang around on Labor Day in a hotel where there's nobody else there. I mean, who else would be in an airport hotel on Labor Day weekend except for people going to this conference? So we kind of have the whole hotel to ourselves. You meet some great people, which I did again this year. 
And so there's a plug for whatever reason. I'm stream of consciousness pulling here. Go to next Labor Day, go to the Ron Paul Institute conference, whichever one they put on. It's usually somewhere around Dulles Airport. And I understand Colonel Douglas McGregor is on vacation, which he actually told me I met him there at the conference, but he'll be back the week after next. So we'll get him on the show. I've already spoken to his scheduler and I've got some great other guests coming up. One, a financial uh, planner from Manhattan who manages some very big accounts and a lot more. So stay tuned. And as always, I just want to remind you, you can go to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support, where I have links to all the ways you can support what I'm doing here. The generosity of the people who have signed up as paid subscribers is allowing me to write more long pieces, which is something I like to do. I had trained myself to 600 to 800 words when I was writing for the Washington Times and Huffington Post and and other big national publications, but I always liked more of the 1500 word, a little bit longer piece. And I'm allowed to do that because people are good enough to sign up as paid subscribers. So thank you to everybody who has joined recently or way back at the beginning. And I hope you're enjoying the content. Again, you can look into that at tommullentalksfreedom.com slash support. And if you like the music you've heard here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, which is all made by your humble host, then you can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.